0: You're done with your Oreo. Yeah, <laughs> I'm done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, do you really know what happened? Brother. The brother I mean, did. That. The brother. That's what I thought too. <laughs> I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk <laughs> about death?
1: Yeah. This I mean, is I, mystery. I, that,
0: murdery thingy. 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 Okay, great. Okay, great. Who's gonna go first? Oh, welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Oh yes.
1: Hello. Hi. I'm Mario. I'm Chloe. What's that? And you're listening to Miss. We already said
0: that. <laughs> it's like the third time they've heard it now. Um, and that's Mac the cat, the cutest member of Team Mystery, <laughs> <laughs> Wh- whom you can see on Twitter. Um, who's going to go first?
1: Are we just going at yeah, it? Yeah, let's okay. just go. Let's do um, it. I think I'm going to go first. Go,
0: go, 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 go.
1: Um, and so I. Then speak into the I've microphone. got a dub. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to go first because I told you this. I think there's a lot of discussion that needs to happen for this to be fleshed out. Sure. And it is a 29-year-old cold case. The unsolved murder of British couple Alan Leppard and Brenda Long. So Alan, 43 years old at the time of his death, had moved to Moncton with his girlfriend, Brenda Long. So the two were... Very very close. They were planning to get married. Um, they were engaged. Brenda had been divorced for some time, and Alan was waiting for his divorce to finalize. So they were two two people who also previously had relationships. Okay. Um, and one of my main sources was Crime Watch,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and I didn't know how like iconic of a show it was until
0: yeah, I, didn't I read more about it. But. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, It's a British show. Yes. Crime Watch UK. And my main source was when they talked about Alan's murder. And Brenda is speaking on camera. And she says, Alan was a kind man, very gentle. He never hid his feelings. End quote. April 1st, 1991, was when Brenda found Alan dead in front of their cottage. So... That night, numerous witnesses talked about seeing a large Cadillac style white vehicle. And I want to hint at style because okay. there's, I believe there's co- some misconception and that any large white American vehicle to somebody in the UK could easily been, oh, that's a Cadillac. Sure. That is a...
0: But it might have been a Lexus. Exactly. Or a Mercedes-Benz or something. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, many noted that it was American. The steering wheel was on the left side. And around 8.30 that night, one of the neighbors reported seeing it drive by slowly up and down the road outside Alan and Brenda's cottage. And she said it was it was there, just doing that one for mm. a few hours. Creepy. Yes. And so that, that same night, Alan and, Bren, Alan and Brenda were lying in bed watching TV before going to sleep. And it's a little bit before 10 p.m. Uh, there's a knock at the door Brenda gets up she looks out the window and sees two men standing by this large white car um, she sees them she doesn't she doesn't recognize them and they they soon leave um, during that time period more witnesses see both the white car and its driver and it was still nearby about 20 minutes later and um, they they actually did a composite sketch and he was like this young white haired guy and between 30 and ages 30 and
0: 40. But he had white hair.
1: Yeah. Huh. And about 30 to 40 minutes later there's another knock at Ellen's door and Brenda gets up again, looks out the window notices it's the same people as before and Ellen gets up also, and then they both go downstairs. So Ellen calls out, and then he walks out the door, and Brenda hears a shot and a scream. And she runs out, and Ellen is is covered in blood. She starts screaming. Quote, I think he said, get in. I think because he was worried for me. He, he was just a gray color, and he was just going, and there was nothing I could do to stop him, end quote. Um... Alan Leopard is pronounced dead, April first, nineteen ninety-one, and he had been shot in the chest with a twelve bore shotgun.
0: Is that that seem? Is that big? Is that a large? I
1: think so. I don't
0: know too much about guns, but
1: I think so. Huh. Um, I don't know. Do you know?
0: No, not really. But it sounds like it would have been. So it was basically just like one shot, and he was dead. Yes. Okay, so it must have been, like, a pretty big round, I suppose, or... Yeah.
1: Yes, he was pronounced dead at the scene. Hmm. Uh, three weeks earlier, and this is really... There's very little to go off of, and this is one of them. Three weeks earlier the bartender at the local pub reported a man that had come in asking for Ellen specifically uh, the man was described as well dressed he said smart he was just smartly mm-hmm. um, with a red tie a gold chain on one wrist and a watch on the other with he had dark hair and then a square jaw there is Again, there's not much evidence here, and the police have very little to go on. And at this point, um, Brenda is a key witness and is working closely with the police. Fast forward, eight months later, December 28th, 1991. After the murder, Brenda moves to her own flat in Whitstable, or Whitstable? What do you think?
0: Whitstable, probably. Whitstable,
1: a short drive north of Moncton. And on Christmas Day, Brenda's sister reports visiting, visiting her sister, seeing her on Christmas Day, and then also speaking to her the next day. And it's unknown who saw Brenda last. Some say it was her sister and others report her, uh, her previous partner, her ex only known as Mr. Hibbert. Okay. Yes. And on December 28th, Brenda's dead body was found in her bathtub. Next to her was a suicide note and an empty bottle of pills floating in the water. Uh, Dave Stevens from the Cold Case Review team said, quote, Initially, her death looked like suicide, but a post-mortem examination established that she had diethyl ether in her bloodstream and marks around her face and mouth, which which suggested that she had been put to sleep and then drowned. Mm. So they think somebody came up behind her with a cloth.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Soaked with ether and like yeah. knocked her out.
0: That makes sense. And then drowned. Yeah.
1: The both cases remain unsolved despite its showing on, you know, Crime Watch, which, you know, has, I learned, has guided many, uh, many police forces in solving cases and putting in tips. And sure. There's a lot of the episode I watched had like two like updates. Like, thanks to you all. This this, this, and this was captured and like kind of like, um, America's most wanted. Right.
0: America's most wanted, of course.
1: Um, so even it, even if it it did have that exposure, nothing really came of it. There was also a $2,000 reward. Nothing ever came of it as well. And although the Kent police renewed an appeal for information surrounding the two murders, um, there still hasn't been much push. Hmm. And so there's a lot of questions. Right. The main one, besides who, is why. So motive. Alan had no criminal criminal record or suspicious connections and neither did Brenda. Alan worked as a quantity surveyor, which I learned was someone who calculates how much building material is needed for like big pro- projects oh, okay. like construction. That makes sense. Um, so it's not like he has this like high risk job, right? We think.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't naturally. I mean, sometimes there were bad connections associated with construction, you know, so that can be the kind of thing, you know, that the mob or something could be connected to. But I don't think that's the kind of job, even in that context, that would tend to elicit those connections, right? He wasn't the person deciding from whom to buy. He was the one deciding how much to buy. Right. Right. So it's not like he was, like, uh, dealing in contracts, per se.
1: Yes. Um, The police talked about how at one time they were pursuing, like, oh, it was a, um, a contract killer and somebody was hired to kill somebody, but...
0: That's what it seems like. It's so efficient.
1: Right. And some people ask the question of why a shotgun? Right. Um, and I read, I read a lot of posts on Reddit just to stir up some discussion. Sure. So take everything I say at this part of the the discussion with a grain of salt. That it was more difficult to get regular handguns in the UK and shot at the time shotguns were the easiest type of gun
0: to okay. get. Because I was thinking about how it's, you know, obviously a lot more difficult to get a gun there than it is here. It's not impossible. It's not all that unusual, but it's a lot more difficult.
1: And then the question is... Are the deaths linked? Right. Was it the same person? So if it was the same person, it's two very different MOs. You know, one is a quick gunshot wound drive off, and the other is a drowning stage as a suicide. That, like, she was, like, posed, and, like, that takes time.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. In one, they tried to conceal the crime, and the other, they didn't. In one, it was done outside. The other one was done inside. Right. Right. In one, they intentionally came, you know, kind of ambush-killed the person. In the other, it was more of, um, well, I guess in a sense it would be ambush too, right? With the ether. Yeah. But still, like you're saying, it would have taken more time. They got involved, you know, with the crime wars. It seemed a lot more planned out. It seems like two different people.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: But maybe those people are connected.
1: Right. But then it's like... um, were the we have a question of in that case who was the real victim who was the, right, who first was the intended intem- intem- victim right, right 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 so um you know police interviewed everyone in the area um fox hunt park a park uh over 300 caravans so it's kind of like a trailer park from okay. my understanding Uh-huh it was a very busy Easter weekend. The weather was nice. So there were a lot of extra people in the park anyway on holiday. And there were a lot of visitors. So, the, of course, they couldn't interview on everyone. And, you know, mm. people went off after the weekend was over. And I think that was one of the big factors. They interviewed as many people as they could. but
0: Right. Yeah, It's it sort of reminds me a little bit of when Ted Bundy went to the... would go to the, the shore, you know, on busy days, mm-hmm. and impersonate, yeah. you know, a policeman, or as if he were, like, needed help with his car or whatever, or taking something to his car. And there were just so many people around. They like, were,
1: like, spring breakers that were going right, to be gone in two days. They got
0: descriptions, but yeah. it was all very vague. And just, yeah, he had anonymity just with the... Um, sort of um, being hidden in the crowd, in a sense, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And... The other question is about the car. Yes, there was a suspicious vehicle, but does the car have anything to do with the murder in the first place? Is it a red herring?
0: Mm. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. Yeah, if it were an Agatha Christie Hmm. novel. Yeah,
1: it's I think that's the one that like kind of got me the most that I was like. Nothing seems to make sense here. Yeah, nothing seems to make sense.
0: It all could be connected, it could all be completely disconnected. Right. Even it's even possible she could have even killed herself. I mean, technically, right? They could have been wrong about their forensic analysis. Sure. You know, maybe she gave herself. I never even there, thought about that. You know, because she knew she was gonna take pills and she wanted to make it go more quickly, more more less painfully, right? It's technically possible. I feel like almost every aspect of this story is mysterious. So I yes. see what you were saying earlier, where it's like, okay, how much really is there to dig into here? But then, in another sense, it's everything. It's yeah. just that we're not qualified <laughs> to do real investigations. <laughs> we read stuff that other people did and learned about and talk about. But it. yeah, I
1: think that, and then trying to figure out their 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 both of their deaths were so different. Yeah. was Alan an accident? And Brenda was the intended victim, hence why it was more, you know, personal. Or was Brenda a witness that needed to be killed?
0: Sure. That that would make sense, too. Did, and this may have never come up in your research, but did it ever come up that it may have been connected to one of their exes? Yes. Because that, to my mind, was... I mean, that was one of the first places my mind went. Yes. Because it naturally would.
1: That is the most popular theory. Actually, the most popular theory is that um, this Mr. Hibbert character um, hired a contract killer and killed Alan, Mm -hmm. but then there's still no really great explanation for Brenda's death in that regard either, and... It was unclear, however, um, it's possible that maybe this Mr. Hibbert character, maybe she was having an affair with Alan, and they were still technically married or something along those lines. Um, You know, like, was it like a revenge thing?
0: Yeah. Hmm.
1: If it was a revenge thing, then was Alan an accident? I feel like in that case, Alan would be more of an accident. But then why the shotgun? And why is there
0: eight months in between?
1: Exactly.
0: There must be something that explains that if their murders are connected. But again, who's to say? (laughs) I mean, the fine people of Reddit are looking into it, but, you know, (laughs) not sure how many conclusions they'll come to.
1: But again, there wasn't much evidence except for the peculiar men who came into the a couple of sources say men, but crime watch said there was one man and mm. he came into the pub. It was called white stag, white stag public house, public right. house. <laughs> I'm okay. not even going to try. Okay. Um, and he was like, where, where's Alan? Where's Alan leopard? I was her. I heard, I heard that he drinks here.
0: Hmm.
1: That's what the reconstruction said. So it's probably a little dramatized, but
0: Right. Someone
1: came in like specifically asking for him and then the guy just left. So they got like a general pr- uh, subs- subscription, um, drawing of him. And
0: if that did, did but, have anything to do with it, and I'm just extrapolating a little bit here, but if it did have anything to do with it, then that to me would seem to suggest that it had more to do with her and that, uh, or, um, well, and here's the, I know that sounds counterintuitive, <laughs> but here's the reason why. Because if it were to do with him, they would know what he looked like, and oh. and they would just they would just find him. They would they would know how to track him. But if it was someone who's like connected to her, but contracted to kill him because that's re- the revenge, right? Mm-hmm. And then perhaps after that's done, you know, Mister Hibbert tries to get back in, right? Since the other guy's gone, but she knows what's going on. You know, and she right. won't take him back. So he tries for eight months. When that doesn't work out, he decides wow. she's got to go too. Now, that's a, a lot of supposing.
1: No, it's that's a few a good different one.
0: leaps of logic. That's
1: a lot of. But to well, me, that makes do. a coherent story. <laughs> you know,
0: that to me that's, is a coherent theory of the case.
1: Exactly. Is it? I don't know. I think so.
0: Is it good enough for a Reddit post? Would it get upvoted?
1: Stop.
0: <laughs> I don't go on Reddit. I'm sorry. Stop. I don't mean to make fun of you.
1: Leave Reddit alone
0: leave reddit alone reddit
1: is, pro- reddit is problematic in its own ways okay as
0: is twitter and as jesus christ especially facebook. facebook
1: is on a whole other
0: yeah we could go off love. on a whole rant about that but
1: just watch that one netflix
0: so are people still looking into this, or, I mean, it seems like such a, so, so much more to be plumbed in this investigation.
1: Yes, the trail has gone cold. Yeah. The most recent article I found was from December of 2019.
0: This feels but... like one of those that people need to do a real investigative podcast about, not, like, us talking about, you know, like, no. but someone needs to, like, really do, maybe that's already done, and we just don't know about it, but... I don't know. If we
1: won the Powerball, would we do that? <laughs> right. Yeah, we were
0: talking about what would you do with $40 million, right? Um, but no, it's it's a very, very intriguing mystery, and so much of it is mysterious. Mm-hmm. So I think it was good to talk about in that respect. But yeah, not too much to say, because <laughs> so much of it is so mysterious. Yes. Yeah. So did, did you have anything else? Um,
1: I don't think so...
0: And you said you're one of your sources earlier, but what were your sources?
1: Crime Watch, May right. 1991. A Kent News article by Will Harris and a BBC article that didn't show a particular author titled, Kent Double Murder Mystery Reviewed 20 Years On.
0: Cool. Okay, thank That's you. It. Okay. Well, we all know what I'm doing. I'm doing the second part two, part part two. of, and sorry for, for continually saying that I was going to talk about stuff in the next episode. <laughs> we realized afterwards that probably sounded annoying. I
1: was like, you did that a lot.
0: Yeah, I did it way too much. Um, anyway, well now it's part two. And in this episode, we're going to just start by checking in a little bit with the state of the investigation during the crimes themselves and just like a really quick recap. And then we're going to get into what, it's essentially, what I see is like the double track of how the investigation went over the next you know decades um that it's been going you know and still going um Which is wild, and you know I'll sort of at the end talk about how the authors of my main source, Mario Spezzi and Douglas Preston, themselves became part of the story and became suspects themselves. What? Uh, which is crazy. So um, just a quick recap, though, that the monster of Florence killings, right, were the murder of at least 14 people between 1974 and 1985 in and around Florence, Italy, um, in the Tuscany region, and that by the end of that, in 1985, the police had not really come to too many solid conclusions about um who was behind these murders or, or what was really going on despite having jailed some suspects and, and finding one key clue, um, that I think is, is kind of what I want to, um, keep the focus on throughout this second part, which is that there were these unique marks, um, unique in, in the strict sense of the word marks on the bullets. And because of that, we know that, All of the murders, including that one from 1968, right, that precedes all this, were all done with the same gun. Now, we don't know necessarily they were done by the same person, but we know that all of them were done with the same gun. That seems to, in all my research, be conclusively proven. So that is sort of the, you know, lifeline that we'll, we'll hold on to as so much else is like about this investigation is crazy. Um, so that was kind of the one thing, if they knew one thing, the police did know in 1985. And um, essentially, whoever has the gun is the monster, right? So that's that's kind of how you would solve this mystery. But we don't know that, obviously. So why it's a mystery? Um And the gun in question, right, the gun, disappeared that faithful night back in 1968 when Barbarloci and her lover were killed um when you know while canoodling in their car like yes. the all of the victims in the later crimes as well and uh, according to his conviction the trial and the the, f- the first investigation and everything right stefano mele was solely responsible for her killing his wife and and her lover um stefano maintained that he threw the gun into a ditch after the crime but it was never recovered and it's really Highly doubtful that that's actually what happened. Um, acor- according to Douglas Preston and and to, you know other things that I've heard, um, guns used in murders like this are almost never tossed away, and they're they're usually either destroyed or they're kept hidden.
1: Why would he say that he did it?
0: Why would he say that he did it? Well, Stefano Mele may have not been competent to stand trial. First of all, um, he was he was known to have some perhaps developmental difficulties and he may perhaps have been coached um either by the police you know as they tend to do sometimes or by other people who maybe have been involved as we'll see right the sardinian connection um, into confessing to be the sole perpetrator of the crime. But that's probably that's, not what actually happened.
1: That's so snaky and evil.
0: Yeah, no, it it definitely is. I mean, so much about this uh, story uh, is truly, yes. truly evil. Um, so, and I was just going to mention that as a, a another example of how guns like this don't tend to just get thrown away um, if you recall from the my episode on uh, white the white mischief murder that the gun used in that murder, you know, uh, there was an, in Kenya, you know, back in the 20s, Happy Valley said all that stuff that the gun used in that murder was at one point hidden in a barn loft for a while and then the killer got super paranoid about it so he oh, literally yeah! took it on a boat to the, into the ocean yeah. and threw it into oh, the deep God. ocean that's what tends to happen with guns like this they don't get thrown into a ditch and then never found even though the police scoured the area yeah doesn't make any sense so the chain the true chain of custody for the the gun the monster's gun which was a 22 beretta using these um winchester h copper jacket rounds is is one of the the big mysteries, sort of the central mystery in the case, right? Because, again, if you know that, then you know who the the monster was. So, again, by 1985, reporter Mario Spezzi had been writing about the monster killings in the Florentine paper La Nazione for four years. had written hundreds of articles about all of the truly gruesome scenes and the ongoing investigation. And he was the first journalist um, to bring the crimes to light um, he actually in 1981 when researching that murder tipped off the police to the earlier murder in 1974 oh, so, he, wow. so d- he sort of was the one who realized there was a serial killer oh. he also named the monster of Florence he gave him that moniker in his articles Il Mostro di Firenze
1: I can see why people were looking at him
0: well, yeah he, i mean he's pretty he was obsessed with this case for like a good part of his career and eventually he would even be called by his colleagues the monstrologer
1: i like that because <laughs> okay. it, it was
0: like his. i mean he was on the monster beat for years and years and years um and he was really singularly devo- devoted to unraveling this horrific mystery of of who exactly it was right to take him at at face value at his word which I think I think we should you know he was just doing his duty you know as as a, a journalist as a reporter to try to right. solve this crime right? right but you're right it 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 could and did get misinterpreted and maybe intentionally um but it was after the double homicide in June of 1982 um, I think that was the the third set of victims that the police were tipped off in an anonymous letter to that earlier 1968 killing, right, that was committed oh. by Stefano Melli. So that's where that comes in. I just want to kind of rope that back in, in terms of, like, the actual timeline here. That's when they got that anonymous letter. If you remember, it was the letters cut out of the magazines and yeah, stuff. Yeah, like yeah, Like a freaking... Yeah. Ugh, creepy. <laughs> um, like a literal horror movie... Um, so, when, obviously, the 1968 killing came to light, and it was found out that Stefano Melli was not in jail any longer, but actually living in a halfway house in Verona, crime writers from all over Italy were, like, clamoring to go and interview him, obviously, right? Um, the man who is, we know, not the monster, because he was in jail while it happened, but was involved in a killing that the monster was definitely tied to. So... He obviously was not willing to do any of those interviews, right, obviously, and the priest who ran the halfway house in which he was living would sort of, like, fend these crime reporters off and did not also want to facilitate this kind of thing. However, through some um, clever subterfuge, Mario Spezzi was able to get that interview that everyone wanted, that no one else was able to get. Yes so he went to the priest and he lied to the priest and (gasps) told him that he, I know, right. Going to hell forever. Um, that uh, anyway, (laughs) that he was shooting a documentary about the halfway house and the great work that the priest was doing. And he interviewed the priest and, um, interviewed other residents. Eventually, ah, Stefano Mele. I
1: see. That's good.
0: Right. And Mario Spezzi, very clever man. And according to Douglas Preston, quote, at the end, Stefano Mele said something odd. They need to figure out where the pistol is. Otherwise, there will be more murders. They will continue to kill. They will
1: continue. What
0: the fuck? Continue. No!
1: Oh, that freaks me out. Oh, my
0: God. So, obviously, this is very creepy and would imply that maybe more than one person was the, you know, (sighs) infamous Il Mostro. And when Spezi and the authorities dug into the 1968 killing, this was seeming more plausible, more possible, um, as we'll see. So, it appeared uh that the original investigation and the ensuing trial of Stefano Melle had not revealed the full truth of what happened that night. First, it would seem unlikely that Mele would have been motivated by this, like, burning jealousy that they said, because actually he and his wife were involved in numerous sexual liaisons. It was, like, a thing. Weird. Weird with various men in Mele's circle of fellow Sardinians okay, right. in, so in we'll his some, clan. Nothing wrong open. with that if that's what you want to do, but it's it from what I read, it seemed exploitative.
1: Okay, okay. Both
0: for him and her.
1: Not the right
0: kind. Yeah, it didn't seem like they were just, like, having fun, um, necessarily. So when Stefano Mele's wife, Barbara Locci started seeing a guy outside that circle of Sardinians, though... That may have been when things went wrong, and this may have been what what they call a delito di clan, or a clan killing, what you might call an honor killing, right? She, and this is stupid, obviously, but she, like, you know, in this construction would have gone against the honor of the Sardinian clan by, you know, messing around with the guy outside of that. So it's fine if you, you know, uh, cheat on your husband with everyone here, but that guy, come on, you have to die. Mm. That's the idea. It's fucking stupid. So, the, thus, as all honor killings, obviously, are, uh, apart from being horrendous and tragic, also very stupid, um, thus began one of the main stalks, as as you might say, one of the main kind of, like, alleys of the investigation into the, the monster killings, what would come to be called the Sardinian Connection, or Pista Sarra in in Italian. So, from then... Until now, many Italians, and especially certain members of the Carabinieri, which is the the military police that investigates domestic crimes as well, were convinced that Il Mostro was probably one or more of those Sardinians, of the Vinci brothers. You remember we mentioned the Vinci brothers last time, Francesco, Salvatore, and Giovanni. And then we'll talk about even another Vinci. So all three had of them, though, of those brothers, had reportedly been sexually involved with Barbara Lucci again in this sort of okay. weird sexual thing that was going on, and may, um, at least one of them, may have been present at the murder, at her murder in 1968, okay. and been the actual one who pulled the trigger. Um, or it, it might, in fact, have been Stefano Melli. It's not clear. Um, and one of them may very well have ended up with the gun. So, whatever occurred back in 1968, by the summer of 1985, um, the monster had taken his last known victims, the French tourists, and still no one knew who had that gun, who was the monster, what had been the chain of custody since 1968. Um, This is sort of the, the beginning of the long investigation that would ensue. Um, But the monster was not quite done. In his final, extremely cruel act, he mailed a piece of one of the last victims' bodies to one of the investigating prosecutors, Sylvia Della Monica, who was so traumatized by this that she left law enforcement entirely. She just gave it up. Wow. Because she was so freaked out. Yeah. And that also included a note with the freaking you know serial I mean, killer fair, crazy fair. yeah so yeah and as was his wow. mo the monster didn't leave any fingerprints and was careful not to lick the envelope which is strange because dna technology wasn't even around then but still he was like oh i shouldn't lick this envelope because that's going to be like a trace of me what
1: if he just didn't lick envelopes
0: could period. be could be i mean he seems like he might have been a very you, know, you think
1: he's an envelope liquor?
0: <laughs> it doesn't seem like it. <laughs> um, so, okay, so in Italy, prosecutors and investigating judges worked. It's a little bit different than here in the U.S. The prosecutors and uh, investigating judges work together, and in this instance, um, the two happen to be Chief Prosecutor Pierre Luigi Vigna and Examining Magistrate Mario Ortella. And they, Another Mario? And there are so many Marios in this. I wasn't even going to mention it, but thank you.
1: It's funny because you're not even Italian.
0: I know. It's crazy. <laughs> people, people always ask me. So they, uh, these two men, Vigna and Rotella, they hated each other oh. uh, from jump. They never liked each other. They didn't appreciate each other's style. They just they hated each other for whatever reason. And um, this obviously negatively affected the case. So, Vigna was sort of, um, he was a little bit famous because he had solved some big crimes before. He was very media-savvy, great in front of a camera. Rotella was exactly the opposite. Um, According to Douglas Preston's article in The Atlantic, he was, quote, a pedant and a bore, close quote, Uh, which is not a nice thing to say about anyone. a pedant? (laughs) A pedant is someone who... um, Oh is always explaining things oh. and talking like it's me. I'm talking about myself. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's someone who's was who's like
1: oh too obvious. Oh no, I know
0: I knew it was coming in. I agree. <laughs> um but yeah, no someone who is who is just like too too smart for their own good and and rubbing it in your face in an obnoxious <laughs> way. Again, Myself. No. <laughs> okay. Um, so their first major rift, Rotella and Vigna, right, was came very early when the last two victims had been murdered while um, the two of the Vinci brothers were still incarcerated, right? As we talked about last time, it's, this keep kept happening, where they would jail someone and then another murder would happen, as if the monster were rubbing it in their face. And Vigna. Or, or. Yes. Um. Do you have something important to
1: Shapeshifters. say? Shapeshifters. Oh, of
0: course. That's, I'm sure. So, Vinia, the one avenue they didn't go down. Yeah. Should have given them that tip. Um, so, Vigna, the prosecutor, wanted to release the Vinci brothers. Rotella, the magistrate, disagreed. Rotella was convinced, the, the magistrate, the judge, was convinced that uh, that the Sardinian connection was was correct, i.e. that one of the members of the Sardinian clan present, For the 1968 murder, one of the Vinci's must be Il Mostro. I think so,
1: too.
0: Seems most likely right. So Rotella focused on Salvatore Vinci in particular. For one thing, his first wife, whom he married only after raping her and her becoming pregnant... What the fuck? ...died at 19 in 1961 under very mysterious circumstances. Essentially, she died by gas poisoning in a closed room... And they said it was officially ruled a suicide, but their one-year-old son was there with her, and he was mysteriously whisked away by someone and saved, and then left at someone's doorstep.
1: What the fuck?
0: But they never found out who, so clearly that was probably Salvatore Vinci, and he probably killed his first wife. And this is why he had to leave Sardinia in the first place was the like pall that this cast over him, right? Because everyone essentially knew he probably did it. So, in order to hold Salvatore Vinci and gain leverage over him, Rotella decided to reopen that investigation okay. into the killing of Barbarina, Salvatore Vinci's first wife, and try him for that murder. Okay, you know, yeah, which is uh, not Strad- unusual yeah. strategy that that authorities pursue. So this, um was a terrible idea this went about as bad as you could possibly imagine neither witnesses who came to testify nor the evidence that the prosecution presented were convincing at all salvatore's son antonio refused to testify against his father salvatore was acquitted and disappeared forever Presumably, he fled Italy and went to lay low somewhere. He was never, literally never heard from again in public life. So if he was the monster, he got away scot-free. But while this is suspicious, to me, it doesn't necessarily mean he was the monster. Because as you can imagine, like this case that destroyed people's lives that I'm not even going to talk about because it's like too much if you got even accused of these murders, like, that was it. You were done. Yeah. Someone killed yeah. themselves because they were accused of this, probably falsely. So, like, I think you can understand if he weren't the monster, he may also have run. So, it's to me, it's not that indicative one way or the other.
1: That's a good point.
0: Right? But I can see how you would think that. But you didn't say anything. But I just imagine people think that. But um, this whole debacle, right? Um, so enraged Vigna... Um, the the prosecutor, that he orchestrated the formal closing of the Sardinian connection uh, as part of the investigation, and um, essentially issued an exoneration of the Vinci's and anyone else connected to the 1968 killing, and said proactively they are not guilty of the Monster of of Florence killings, you know, and we're just not going to look at them at all ever again. Which is weird, right
1: what triggered that what's his face leaving or
0: uh yeah just this whole debacle with salvatore vinci they were just yeah i think he just figured like if we investigate the vincis then you know we're just going to get embarrassed again this whole sardinian thing is a it's a hoax it's not real and we shouldn't have done it from the beginning so yeah i'm not really sure but the polizia, the, the the domestic, you know, civilian police were on Venia's side, theorizing that the monster's gun must have, quote from Douglas Preston, passed out of the hands of the Sardinians before the monster killings had begun, close quote. But, I mean, who's to say? So um, the Carbonieri, though, were livid, as they mostly favored the Sardinian connection and thus thought that a guilty man had just been exonerated and let to, you know, to go scot-free again. Um, so although they, they still couldn't say exactly who that would be, maybe Salvatore Vinci, maybe not. So the the special task force, the squadra uh, anti was officially dissolved when the Carbonieri refused to continue to participate in it, and Chief Inspector Ruggiero Perugini reformed a, a task force just with the, the police, the la Polizia. Um, and Perugini went on TV and said directly to Il Mostro, quote, People call you a monster, a maniac, a beast, but I believe I have come to know and understand you better. Close quote. Essentially doing that thing where you try to gain, like, a rapport with the killer, right? To try to get them to come out of the woodwork or confess or something, right? It didn't work, but he, he, that's sort of his first gambit that he tried. So Perugini, like Vigna, also refocused the case away from the Sardinian connection. And he came to find that when he started actually looking into it himself, that from a forensic standpoint, essentially the case had been bungled. There was nothing to work with, really. Oh,
1: wow. Now, the what? monster...
0: it like was, a, like,
1: blood everywhere, all the time.
0: Of the victims. Now, the, but the mm. monster almost never left any trace. And the few times he did essentially, that uh, evidence was not well con- collected and it wasn't well preserved. So, by the late 90s, right, it's like... Is there or a mid-90s. cop involved? Sorry?
1: Is there, a co- Is there a cop involved?
0: You know, I never heard that angle. No, but I, I think it was just badly investigated. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I there was never really any um, suggestion of that, per se. But um, what, you know, kind of Perugini. you need decided to do instead since he didn't really have like too much physical evidence to rely on was he turned turned to the sort of emerging statistical computer analysis um that that was available you know by that point and he searched you know just a number of crime databases basically perusing different crime statistics and narrowing it down by what he thought would be the the Characteristics of the killer, okay. and you know, different like when they were in jail and not, and things like that. So, he searched through like tens of thousands of of Tuscan, you know, former you know criminals and stuff. And through this method, he believed he had surfaced one likely suspect, a man named Pietro Paciani. And it if he was not the monster, this guy, this fucking guy, Paciani was a monster a true truly a monster oh no um he had been which is part of why obviously persiany was was looking at him right um Pacciani had been convicted of violence and multiple sexual assault against his own daughters Oh God! and he was a known alcoholic and uh, you know those two things went together apparently. Um, he was also in prison from 1974 to 1981, coinciding with the seven-year gap between the first and second set of monster uh. killings, so that made sense, right? And it came out that Paciani had actually committed murder previously and been convicted in 1951, and in that case also committed rape and necrophilia. Oh. So, again... Truly, a monster, a yeah, uh, completely the fuck? despicable, irredeemable person, yeah. right? Clearly, but was he the monster of Florence? That seems less likely. Um, Perugini, though, was very much convinced that he was, and essentially, he began to try to get the evidence necessary to convince everyone else and a jury ultimately and that he how was you're supposed as well. To
1: look at stuff. No, that
0: is not good. Investigative technique: You don't go from conclusion to evidence; you go from evidence to conclusion. Everyone yes. knows that in every honest pursuit. Um, but yeah, not what Perugini was doing, obviously. Um, so the actual evidence against pacciani was very circumstantial; was fairly thin. Some of it may have been planted, actually. I mean, you talk about... Not that any police were involved with the crimes, but there may have been some official misconduct in terms of planting evidence in this instance. Mm -hmm. That it's not proven, but there have been allegations. So, anyway, on January 16th, 1993, almost eight years after the last murder, Pacciani was arrested on suspicion of being Il Mostro. Many were convinced simply by dint of him having been arrested and charged, right? Well, he must be the guy. He got arrested. Um, but Mario Spezzi, amongst others, was was not so convinced. Um, and some simple profiling would seem to suggest that Pacciani may, again, not have been the monster. Um, and in, including the fact that the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, when they did their report, right, which was secret for a long time and that came out way later said that the monster was probably impotent, and um, obviously Pacciani was a rapist, so that's kind of the opposite.
1: I also feel like he would be a disorganized killer if he was going to do something it would it wouldn't be clean like that
0: exactly
1: or that it's very sophisticated and efficient weirdly weirdly efficient right yes there's
0: two people and the way that the corpses were posed and and all of that stuff and and obviously what we talked about last time the very gruesome aspects in terms of the desecration of the bodies right he wouldn't seem to be capable of this in some ways and um yeah, that, that so so that all seems to, to kind of suggest that he probably wasn't. So, another thing that suggests he probably wasn't was that while testifying to his awful brutality and violence, Pacciani's wife and daughters told the court that Pacciani could not have been the monster, if only because he was brutalizing them when he was supposed to have been out committing these murders oh, that the God. monster did. So, you know... Yeah, he, he was doing another crime at the time, essentially. So, nevertheless, Pacciani was convicted and sentenced to life what? in prison.
1: What? Wait, which what? Which
0: triggers an automatic appeal. Uh, not done with the story. Sorry. It, that's Sorry. okay. That's okay. It was also um, mandatory that a new prosecutor be a, assigned, okay. and which I, th- I think your reaction was was merited, because when that new prosecutor was assigned, he refused to prosecute the case, literally. He instead, in court, advocated for Pacciani's innocence and pointed out all of the obvious holes in the prosecution's case and the investigation, how it got bungled by the police. And on February 13th of 1996, Pacciani was acquitted on appeal. Wow. And he died about two years later while a new trial was being prepared. So he would have been tried again in 1998. But instead, he he died, he died from
1: stress. Yeah, I have I have no feelings. Yeah, exactly. I don't fucking care. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um. So while an ultimate conviction did not come out of that case, it did provide the spark for another one of sort of the other right main trunk of the investigation, um, the so-called picnicking friends or satanic connection. No. We'll, we'll talk about uh, how that plays in. So one um. Uh, on the day that Pacciani was acquitted, the police produced some surprise witnesses um, that they said had firsthand knowledge and must be heard. Literally on the day, they were just going to like announce that he was acquitted. And the judge did not allow this, simply essentially reading it as a stunt from the prosecution. And we're not going to allow it. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. But these initially anonymous witnesses claim to either be witnesses to or actual participants in the Monster of Florence killings, along with Pacciani. This is after Pacciani is dead, that this all comes out. Um, Sort of in a larger scheme, of which the Monster killings are only one part. And of course, the bigger story here is a satanic cult involving members of the elite and shadowy circles who needed body parts for certain infernal rituals of their satanic cult. No. Now, there's... Not any real evidence of that per se, but a lot of there's a lot of allegations, and it's something that nope. appeals to certain people's sensibilities, like some of the people investigating the crime.
1: Yeah, no, well,
0: you say that, but th- this is like the official focus of the investigation. This Currently? just since then. What, yeah, yeah this, I mean,
1: maybe it,
0: it, it doesn't seem very likely,
1: it seems like a stretch,
0: yeah. Um, so according to them, the killings were done, right, for that purpose, to get, to get these human body parts, um, but it, again, not very clear at all what, uh, real validity there was to these, um, assertions that these people were making, but in any case, after Pacciani died in 1998, two of his alleged accomplices, Mario Vanni, yet another Mario, and Giancarlo Lotti, were tried, um, And it was Vani who coined the term picnicking friends when he was testifying at Pacciani's trial and continually pleaded that he and Pacciani were just picnicking friends. And he didn't know anything about any murders. They were just picnicking friends.
1: I don't get it. And he kept saying that.
0: It was weird. weird it was just so strange like it just freaked me out when i was listening to the audiobook of the book uh. about it he just like kept talking about it and it was just it was very creepy to me um and this whole but, but also because it became a thing like this term which in italian is compagni de, di merende like, literally became slang in the Italian language for people who, like, claim to be innocent but really are, like, up to no good and should not be trusted. And those people are picnicking friends. (laughs) I just think it's weird. People should start using it here. Um, anyway, so Lotti testified that he had seen Pacciani and Vanni commit the final monster killings in 1985, and eventually Lotti also incriminated himself and both were convicted and sentenced to life. Um, On essentially his, you know, um, his what, word? Yeah, what, what may have been a false confession. I mean, who's to say actually, but it seems that may well have been the case.
1: Are the police under a lot of pressure at this time? Oh,
0: definitely. Yes. Throughout this whole thing, they're, I feel they're like under that pressure. That would be the only
1: explanation somebody. for this nonsense.
0: Right. And that they may have cut off the actual avenue if it were the Sardinian connection, right? And they just said, we're not going to do this. But 20 years later, you know, it's still, like, not all that solved. So anyway, um, many saw, you know, just as, as we obviously do, their convictions as false, including Mario Spezzi, who continued to investigate. And he remained focused on that central question of who ended up with the gun from the 1968 killing. Find the gun, find the monster, Right. So when Spezzi and Douglas Preston met in 2000, Spezzi was still convinced that the uninvestigated Sardinian connection would lead to one of the Vinci's as the true monster. So he went over the factors, you know, with Douglas Preston that um, meant it was almost certainly not Paciani, right? In addition to what we talked about earlier, he was also shorter, older, and less well-coordinated or physically fit than the monster would need to be in order to, to, to commit certain aspects of the crimes. So, he, um, eventually, Mario Spezzi and Douglas Preston um, would come to focus on one particular Vinci, Antonio Vinci, the another son life. of Salvatore Vinci, who was briefly mentioned earlier because okay. he refused to testify against his father. And why did he do that, right? That's another mystery. It may have been because Antonio stole the gun from Salvatore, who had been hiding it after the 1968 killing, because there was a burglary that was reported, um, of Salvatore Vinci's home, but when police went to go investigate, he just sort of blew them off, and nothing ever came of it, and some people, including Spezzi, think that that may have been when Antonio Vinci stole the gun that was then later used in the monster killings, presumably by Antonio Vinci, and that he was the true monster of Florence, the son of the man who, you know, killed his mother and from whom he stole the gun. So, anyway, does that make sense? You look confused.
1: Well, I don't understand the timeline. I thought he...
0: He was one year old in 1968 when... Oh, wait. Sorry, he was one-year-old one back in 1961 when Salvatore Vinci killed Barbarina, his wife, with the gas. But it was ruled suicide. Oh,
1: okay, okay.
0: There's so many, so many things. I, yeah, I wanted to make sure that was clear. This is his, his son, son, the one-year-old who oh, was... who
1: was mysteriously... Okay. Right,
0: right. Who then, you know, uh, refused to testify against his father in the later trial of that 1961 killing.
1: So what does he have to do with the monster? Do they think that's him? Because they think he they f- was related to another suspect.
0: Because presumably, in this theory, right, of this theory of the case, Salvatore Vinci ended up with the gun after the 1968 killing. Okay, he stored it. His son found out about that oh. years later, stole the gun from him, and then he became the monster of.
1: I get it now. Okay. Yeah.
0: So um, obviously, that's when, pretty
1: strong. That's pretty... That's a
0: lot of... Again, some, some, some supposing. So, Antonio Vinci was still alive at this time. And uh, Mario Spezzi went to go see him and talk to him. And, of course, um, he denied all of this. He said if he would have uh, stolen the gun from his father, he would have killed his father. And that was his defense. He said, obviously, I would have killed my dad because I hated him. So I didn't take that gun because that's what would have happened. That doesn't seem super plausible.
1: I guess.
0: Right? It's like, okay, okay. Um, And of course, he also denied being the monster of Florence when Mario Spezzi flat out asked him, Are you the monster of Florence?
1: Yeah, he's going to like. Seems crazy. He's just going to say yes right then and there. I know, right.
0: Um, So, yeah, over the next few years, Spezzi and Douglas Preston would research their book on the killings, um, sort of get up to different stuff. Uh, At one point, they were accused of planting evidence um and it
1: seems to like there's so much going on here ah, with the so investigation much, so
0: much Some, so much more
1: why are they so wh- they're just like why does it also go with corruption i don't where did that come from and why
0: yeah i don't know um but anyway when at one point the police had sort of had enough right And it seems like, essentially, because Mario Spezzi was, uh, you know, kind of going against the official line on what the investigation should be, um, he himself was accused of the crime, and um, Douglas Preston was accused of being his accomplice, or after-the-fact accomplice. And, uh, Douglas Preston was made to leave Italy. Mario Spezzi was jailed for, I think, about three months. Wow. On essentially thin suspicions. And, and all of this was eventually dismissed, right? But at the time, Spezzi's cause was world, world famous. And seen as, of course, an example of police, you know, bullying a journalist of a, what we would call a First Amendment violation, right? because um you know they just essentially didn't appreciate what he was writing or what he was pushing in terms of the investigation this book that they knew was going to be coming out and um eventually despite the police's protestations that book did come out and um was published including the accusation of who they really thought was the true monster which and antonio vinci and uh, afterwards spezzi swore off the case because he just had had enough at that yeah, point i mean
1: yeah <laughs> i mean he had
0: spent a good part of his life looking into this and it almost ruined his life so he was like oh i'm okay i'm done which is yeah very understandable so let's wrap up just by briefly going over some of the suspects and then i'll give the last word to douglas preston so the suspects um obviously these uh indiani that we talked about before right one of these voyeurs roaming the hills of florence creepily so, spying on amorous yeah, couples yeah. maybe one of them that they just didn't look into of course the sardinian connection la pista sarda um the theory that one of the monster uh, that the monster of florence is one of those people from the sardinian clan that emigrated to Tuscany and were involved in that 1968 killing ended up with the gun Pietro Paciani, doesn't seem likely. Mario Spezzi, probably not. Yeah. Some sort of satanic cult, uh, the so-called picnicking friends. Again, probably not. Um, And throughout all of this war, was there one monster or was there more than one monster?
1: I think there was more than one.
0: Seems fairly like there there was more than one, I say more
1: than one specifically off of What's-His-Face, who said they... Exactly. They Stefano have to find the pistol. Right. They will blah, right. blah, blah,
0: So, yeah, even after years of research actually becoming subsumed in the case himself, Douglas Preston is still fairly circumspect about saying anything too, de- just, you know, definitive or, or being too hopeful that things will get solved too neatly. Yeah, he's so,
1: over
0: it. Yeah. yeah. So, quote, I must say, and this is Douglas Preston, quote, I must say, in all fairness, we do not have a smoking gun. And what we have is a theory, which seems to fit the facts better than other theories. But the problem in this case is that I've seen so many theories. So many theories from A to Z that I've come to doubt my own theory. I think, well, maybe our theory isn't any better than anyone else's. But now I've come to believe, in fact, that we will never know the truth. I think the Monster of Florence case will be like, jack the ripper you know i think a hundred years from now 200 years from now people will still be writing books about the monster of florence and speculating who this person might have been but they will never know close quote
1: wow
0: that that was a good summation and we will never know
1: here's the oscar
0: right thank you so much that was a dramatic reading by (laughs) mario silva right Try to keep it entertaining. So, yes, my sources were The Monster of Florence, the book to which I've been referring by Douglas Preston and Mario Spezzi, Um, Douglas Preston's article in The Atlantic, um, a transcript of a Dateline episode from June 20th of 2007 hosted by Stone Phillips on NBC, Wikipedia, The Monster of Florence page, Criminal Minds Wiki, The Monster of Florence page, John Philip Jenkins at Encyclopedia Britannica, and Tobias Jones at The Guardian. There we go. And that was the monster of Florence killings,
1: wow, that was amazing.
0: That was a big one That
1: was very well done.
0: thank you thank you re and and if you're at all more interested in this, read the article, read the book or listen to the audiobook um there's yeah, it's a very, very interesting case,
1: yeah, you said you would you left some stuff out, right?
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. There were a lot a lot of other characters and avenues down which I could have gone that I chose not to for the sake of time because we're already about an hour. But quickly, let's do some weird, weird shit, in shit in the news. news. Okay. You go you go first.
1: Um mine's about a hippo.
0: <laughs> good.
1: <laughs> he said good.
0: Should we hear more stories about hippos these days.
1: So, right. This is from Huff Post. Is HuffPost the same thing as the Huffington Post?
0: Yes. It's just a cuter name for it. I'm Seriously? not sure. No, I'm not sure. Oh, I was
1: like, What?
0: <laughs> Are you fucking with me? Yeah, a little bit, yeah.
1: So never thought I never would I <laughs> I never thought that I'd be saying the word celebrity hippo. Okay. But um the zookeepers at the Cincinnati Zoo recently got Fiona the hippo to pick which team would win Sunday Super Bowl, the Chiefs or the San Francisco 49ers. It was like two weeks ago now. Yeah. This is a little late. That's okay. <laughs> but, obviously the Chiefs won and what, so what they, what they did was they set up two, quote, enrichment items. One had the Chiefs logo and the other had the 49ers and they were like, let her out to see which one she liked. And, um, quote, the keepers figured Fiona would simply press her snout to one of the items, but since she had just eaten lunch, <laughs> she had decided to upchuck some freshly chewed veggies atop the Kansas City logo.
0: <laughs> Great.
1: And she was right.
0: <laughs> Appropriate.
1: And they say that, um, Fiona's predictions have about a 50% accuracy rate.
0: Okay. <sighs> well, Good. Exactly what one would expect from a natural experiment, so I like it. Um, mine is uh, from AP Odd News, and it is titled Fluffy Malfunction. Foam fills airport hangar in Virginia. What? Um, literally. Fills and overspills onto a road that had to be closed.
1: That sounds exciting if you're like Seven. <laughs>
0: right bubbles. oh it's so cool except it's <laughs> bubbles that are gonna suffocate you oh my god because it's filling an airport a hangar, it, and they didn't close the airport so i guess they were able to seal it off but yeah it, it literally went and then it went outside and onto a road that they had to close so this was in manassas virginia um and that's pretty much the whole story but i thought it was funny and odd so that's my story and thank you for listening thank to you our podcast. Thank you for listening
1: to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook.
0: At Murdery Thingy, at Mario Text30 for my so bullshit. So now all
1: the Facebook posts are the same <laughs> ones as the Instagram <laughs> posts?
0: Oh, and it, just in case you were wondering, I, I know our Twitter hand, then when I tweeted out on mine. The handle for our podcast is wrong <laughs> i'm trying to fix that because <laughs> it's, it's funnily not actually correct okay um thanks for listening